At first sight, the quiet green fields around the small Northamptonshire village of Naseby seem unexceptional. But look more closely, and you find clues that a momentous event occurred here, which was to shape the history not only of Britain, but every modern democracy. Because it was here, in just two hours on the morning of the 14th of June, 1645, that a bloody battle decided the fate of a king and began a journey that would eventually lead to the constitutions which govern millions of people living in the world's democracies today. To learn more about what has been described as Britain's most important battlefield, publisher Mike Gibbs was joined by Mark Linnell, chairman of the Naseby Battlefield Project, and Civil War historian Professor Andrew Hopper of Oxford University, a patron of the project. Andy, can I begin by asking you to summarise why the consequences of the Battle of Naseby are still relevant today? Well, Naseby was the decisive battle of the civil wars, the first in which a royal army, led by the king's own person, had been decisively defeated. Its consequences eventually transformed the role of Parliament from being an infrequent event, largely just called to raise the king money, to a permanent governing institution at the heart of British government. Naseby also did much to end the monopoly of the Church of England over religious worship, helping us to evolve into a multi-faith society with the religious freedoms we enjoy in Britain and America today. And of course, the American revolutionaries of 1776 looked to the parliamentarians of the British Civil Wars for their inspiration. Let's now explore the context in which the battle was fought. At this point, the Civil War had been going on for nearly three years. Who was winning? Well, on the eve of the battle, the civil wars were still undecided. Parliament, with the aid of a Scottish army, had won control over the north of England the year before, but the King had defeated the main parliamentary army in Cornwall. Parliament had responded by merging their three southern armies into a national force, the New Model Army, and professionalising its officer corps under a new and younger and more capable commander, the Yorkshireman Sir Thomas Fairfax. The King's main army based at Oxford, expected a quick victory over the new model, but their command was divided in the run-up to Naseby, with the king's nephew, Prince Rupert, and the northern royalists favouring a delay and a northward march. Were the two armies expecting to fight a battle around Naseby? Well, after the royalists' brutal sack of the town of Leicester a fortnight earlier, Fairfax and the new model army had been ordered to seek out and defeat the king's field army. And they marched northwards through Northamptonshire towards Leicester. The King's army had been in Daventry and were intending to march northwards towards the large royalist garrison at Newark. A battle at Naseby was unexpected. It was brought about because two cavalry patrols met in the village the day before the battle and then hastened off to report the presence of each other to their commanders. At Market Harbour on the morning of the battle, the King overruled Prince Rupert's desire to continue the northward march and fatefully decided to give battle. The New Model Army's pay records and the state papers suggest they fielded about 6,000 cavalry, 6,000 infantry and 600 dragoons, so approaching 13,000 men in all. The Royalists must have slightly less, 
about 5,500 cavalry, 5,000 infantry, making around 10,500 in all. So the royalists were outnumbered, but not by quite so much as some historians have claimed. Mark, your home's actually part of the landscape over which the battle was fought. What's it like today, and what was it like in 1645? Naseby is a quiet Northamptonshire village situated in between Northampton to the south and Leicester to the north. The whole area was a key battleground during the Civil War because it's right in the centre and close to the wealthy traders and farmers of the southeast and east and on the edge of the now industrial north. It differs from 1645 simply because the land is the same as everywhere else in England. It's highly cultivated and professionally farmed, with modern farm buildings, hedgerows and roads, with the occasional wind turbine, telephone masts and motorways as a loud reminder of the importance of change through the Industrial Revolution. It's therefore very different from the ridge and furrow, some of which remains, and the boggy and marshy ground pre-cultivation and the large open spaces of the land in the 17th century. One main difference in the landscape now are the hedgerows and woodland fox coverts, which indicate 19th century hunting landscape. The landscape was then a champion, open fields, and largely treeless. The visual evidence over the terrain is simply the topography. There's contours and nooks and crannies, there's rolling aspects of the country, all add to the story of hiding an army and the playing out of the cat-and-mouse chase throughout the Nazi campaign of 1645. The two armies were 14 miles apart the night before the battle. By breakfast, they had moved to within five miles of each other, and by 10 a.m. they were just within a 1,000 yards, following in the footsteps of the commanders of the day, being where they once stood and made key decisions, is the landscape's point of difference. You can see where two armies stretching a mile in length, came to meet each other to fight. Marcus, a former cavalry officer, what do you think were the key factors in fighting this battle? Well, the key factors for both sides were intelligence, leadership and patience. The royalists did not win over the hearts and minds of the local population. They took free quarter and anything else of value, whereas the new model army was paying its soldiers for lodgings. They were paying for the food and the equipment, which improved the new model army's field intelligence and morale of its soldiers. The local population saw them as their saviours. The training and discipline of the Royalist army was tactically superior. They were much more experienced and battle-hardy, and Rupert's and Morris's cavalry were the best in Europe. They could take their time. They could let the first move come from the new model army. But they didn't. They didn't wait. They wanted to ambush rather than wait and see what was there. Ambushes should be well-planned and rehearsed and risk-assessed. This incorrect intelligence and Rupert's assessment of what the new model army was actually doing was wrong, and at best was unlikely to be correct. They weren't running away. The leadership displayed by Fairfax and Cromwell during the battle, by the way they held back their reserves and advantage in numbers, they didn't panic when the front line was being rolled back in spite of Skippen's injuries. He inspired the soldiers of the new model army to rise up and to deliver on the numerical advantage they had. I have to say, I would have waited on that ridge at East Fondon if I was Rupert. Andy, how did the battle unfold? Well, the armies were deployed in conventional fashion with the infantry in the centre of their line and their cavalry on their wings. 
The battle began with Prince Rupert in command of the Royalist right wing, leading a charge against the Parliamentarian cavalry facing him under Commissary General Henry Ireton. Despite being shot at in the flank by Colonel John Oakey's Parliamentarian dragoons stationed behind Sulby Hedges, Rupert's charge broke and drove off much of Ireton's force, wounding and briefly capturing Ireton in the process. Much of the Royalist cavalry pursued them off the field to attack the baggage train of the Parliament army. The veteran Royalist infantry in the centre, commanded by Sir Jacob Astley, marched up the slope at the new model army's infantry, many of whom were conscripts and had been wisely placed behind the crest of a ridge by their commander, Major General Philip Skippen. The Royalist advance broke through the regiments in the Parliamentarian front line, and Skippen was accidentally shot by one of his own men. With the Parliamentarians driven back on their left and in their centre, Royalist victory looked increasingly likely. Meanwhile, over on the right wing, the Parliamentarian cavalry under Lieutenant General Cromwell drove off their outnumbered Royalist opponents, the Northern Horse, commanded by Sir Marmaduke Langdale, and Cromwell's reserve cavalry units then swung round to their left and attacked the Royalist infantry in their flank and rear. This was the decisive moment which turned the tide of battle. The second line of Parliamentarian infantry, steadied by Skippen, who'd refused to leave the battlefield, began to push the Royalist infantry back. Fairfax himself led his uncommitted infantry regiment into the Royalist flank on the right of the line, capturing one of their Royalist standards himself. With both wings of the cavalry removed from the battlefield, the Royalist infantry tried to conduct a fighting retreat. But outpaced by the Parliamentarian cavalry, most of the Royalist foot soldiers were eventually surrounded and forced to surrender. After Cromwell had routed Langdale's cavalry from the field, the king was tempted to intervene with his cavalry reserve. But his secretary, Sir Edward Walker, later related that A person of quality, tis said the Earl of Carnworth, took the king's horse by the bridle, turned him about, swearing at him and saying, Will you go upon your death? Charles was dissuaded, and I have to say it's difficult to imagine a subordinate officer daring to seize Fairfax or Cromwell's bridle. And the engagement only lasted two hours. That seems short compared with some of the other Civil War battles. Yes, and partly because of this, casualties were quite low for a battle of this size. The dead on both sides combined were probably just short of a thousand men, most of whom were Royalists. 400 Royalists were killed on the battlefield and another 300 or so in the pursuit. Only about 150 Parliamentarians were killed. We know that there were 535 Parliamentarians wounded, but over 90% of those seemed to have survived. What made Naseby so decisive was that nearly all the surviving Royalist infantry, around 4,500, were all captured. The battle was over comparatively quickly because these men were surrounded, cut off from help and forced to surrender. But the end of the battle signalled one of Naseby's most notorious consequences, the massacre of Royalist non-combatants, including women and children, of Farndon Field. What actually happened? 
where we know that at least a hundred female royalist camp followers were killed in the pursuit in a rare enclosed field on the battlefield called England's on the north side of the lane from Clipston to Sibertoft. They were attempting to flee the royalist baggage train in the direction of East Farndon. The historian Mark Stoyle has shown that before Naseby, the parliamentarian soldiers had been really pumped up by a steady diet of atrocity literature that narrated these women's supposed cruelties against parliamentarian captives. Fairfax's secretary, John Rushworth, admitted that a hundred had been killed, explaining that they were... Irish women our soldiers would grant no quarter to, and most of the rest of the whores are marked in the face or nose with a slash or cut. It's much more likely that the victims were actually Welsh speakers rather than Irish, as about half the King's infantry at Naseby appear to have been Welsh. I think this tragic episode is a reminder that the civil wars by 1645 were far from a gentlemanly, civil or restrained affair. And this atrocity was also likely, in part, an ugly vengeance for the several hundred civilians who'd been killed by the Royalists a fortnight earlier when they stormed Leicester. Meanwhile, King Charles fled from the field, but left behind his personal baggage, including his secret correspondence. This, as I understand it, played a significant role in bringing the First Civil War to an end and Charles's subsequent trial and execution. Yes, the King's personal correspondence was captured amongst the Royalist baggage train. It included letters to and from the Queen, which showed his attempts to gain reinforcements from Europe to come to fight against his own people. Parliament quickly published them the following month in a pamphlet entitled The King's Cabinet Opened. This publication of his secret letters violated Charles's privacy and his dignity in equal measure, with his duplicitous dealings now laid open to what the Royalist Earl of Clarendon called the rude malice of the people. It's likely that this weakened Royalist resolve and hastened the collapse of the Royalist war effort. How did the role of the new model army at the Battle of Naseby affect its future development? Well, Naseby set in train a series of remarkable, uninterrupted parliamentarian victories that ended the First Civil War within 12 months. The triumph at Naseby affronted parliamentarian critics of the army who'd hoped that the new model experiment would fail such as the MP Denzel Hollis, who'd called its officers a notable dunghill. So Naseby shifted the balance of power at Westminster towards those MPs who wanted to pursue a decisive military victory against the King. It also lessened the political power of Parliament's allies, the Scots Army of the Covenant. Naseby confounded those royalists who'd scorned the new model army's fighting capacity as the new noddle, and the king, who had referred to its commander, Fairfax, as the rebels' new brutish general. So ultimately, Naseby vindicated the establishment of the new model army as a centrally administered national force commanded by experienced younger officers chosen for their commitment and competence. This army transformed over time, 
Gaining in military and political confidence with every victory they felt that God had granted them. When their enemies in Parliament sought to disband them without settling their pay and indemnity in 1647, the army responded by seizing control of the king and reminding Parliament of its grand promises to them. The army's losses and hardships in the Second Civil War of 1648, restarted by Charles I, led to them becoming the driving force behind demands for the king's trial and execution as the capital author of the war. The role of the new model in the regicide of 1649 and in sustaining the Cromwellian protectorate from 1653 to 1659 has led to the British establishment's intense political distrust of standing armies ever since. And this helps us today to explain why the army does not, unlike the Royal Navy and Royal Air Force, enjoy regal designation. Mark, the Naseby Battlefield Project has done a great deal to facilitate access to the site and being able to trace these events on the ground. Can you tell us more? At Naseby, we're very fortunate to have some great relationships with the many landowners who own and farm the area where the battle took place. There are a number of permissive pathways for visitors to the battlefield to visit, and at naseby.com there is a map and a suggested trail. It is the most efficient way of getting around the battlefield, but it does not follow the battle's chronology. It also includes the trail of Market Harborough, which housed the Royalists on the night of the 13th of June, and the New Model Army on the 14th of June with 4,500 Royalist prisoners. For those who want an in-depth visit, we strongly recommend coming on one of our public tours. We've organised eight for this year. Or for groups of friends and colleagues, it is possible to arrange a private guided tour for a group of 10 as a minimum or 20 as a maximum with one of us. All this can be found by visiting naseby.com or writing to inquiries at naseby.com. In addition, the project offers really engaging and informative study tours. Tell us more about these and where listeners can book. These study tours are very special, and we have arranged specific leadership tours, or in the military we used to call them staff rides, and we offer those to the military for schools and universities where the group gets a chance to go into greater depth and analyse what happened next and reflect on the historical and military significance of the battle and the consequences for the winners and the losers. And to get engaged with these tours, again, write to me at inquiries at naseby.com or they can follow the link at naseby.com and I will arrange to meet with the group leader, undertake a recce, discuss the logistics and feeding arrangements and make a plan that meets with their objectives. Clearly, as Andy's described, Naseby has great and worldwide significance. Does the project have any aspirations and plans to increase awareness and understanding of Naseby's importance? Uh, Yes, we do. And we're focusing on three main groups initially to build our audience and to add new supporters. The first group is the schools. This is from primary to A-level history students. We also are focusing on the UK's youth and various charities that make up the youth charities and institutions, such as the cadets, uh, Gargai's Association, etc. And the third group, which is very close to my own background, is the military veterans, where we have terrific links with the 
Army Benevolent Fund, and the Royal British Legion, all of which we want to help educate and promote the battle and its effects to and explore the consequences so they can learn from these experiences in order to make their own lives better. Our plans centre around getting their involvement to use the story of the battle to improve their technical skills, increase their knowledge of history through workshops on site and in their classrooms. For the military veterans, we want to provide them with a place for research, personal development and the opportunities to volunteer and maybe to assist in their rehabilitation. Mark, where can listeners learn more and get involved in all of this? Well, by visiting naseby.com, we're also on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. And for some of us, LinkedIn. Facebook will be carrying the countdown to the battle, which is a chronology of events in 1645 leading up to and including the 14th of June. We would like your listeners to become friends of Naseby, which is a programme that enables our friends to benefit from what we're doing at Naseby. They will receive discounts on our tours and events, get access to our research and a newsletter. Andy, why should people who are not particularly interested in the British Civil Wars or even history care about events that happened here in these fields nearly 450 years ago? I mean, okay, as a consequence, the king was beheaded, Britain experimented with Republican rule, What's the relevance, though, for someone, say, a young person living in Britain or the USA today? Well, Naseby demonstrated that kings and governments need to be held to account, that monarchical authority is not divine, heaven-sent, nor infallible. British kings and US presidents should not be above the law. More representative and accountable forms of government, including those of republics, are entirely possible, as the parliamentarian captain John Hodgson put it. Whether the government hath been monarchy, aristocracy or democracy, the fountain hath been the agreement of the people and that rulers and governors are accountable to the people for their misgovernment. Andy, it's been claimed that Naseby was the birthplace of Western democracy. Is that true? Well, if the king had been victorious at Naseby, the new modelling experiment would have collapsed. The parliamentarian coalition would likely have been pushed into a humiliating peace treaty to negotiate an end of the war in the king's favour. It would likely not have been long before Charles dispensed permanently with calling parliaments. The British monarchies might then have developed in a comparable way to major European powers at the time, such as France, Spain or Sweden, where the powers of divinely ordained kings were less bounded by representative institutions. Yet because of the New Model's victory at Naseby, the Long Parliament would remain sitting another eight years. Thanks to Naseby, Parliament ceased to be infrequent events, instead became a permanent part of government. Within four years of Naseby, the House of Commons in the form of the Rump Parliament, shorn of the House of Lords, had become the sovereign power and the means of authority throughout Britain and soon Ireland also, and the way in which those places were governed. From 1647, the New Model Army elected its own agents. That year, its famous Putney debates established the principle that the English were a freeborn people 
and that even the poorest he, with no property of his own, should have a say in choosing the government he lived under. The army at Putney agreed to widen the franchise to include all soldiers who had been in arms for Parliament before the date of Naseby. And during the 1650s, the franchise was widened temporarily to include voters in new seats in populous towns that had supported Parliament. So Naseby showed also that the divine right of kings could be successfully challenged. Now, subsequent monarchs did not always learn this lesson. The failure of Charles I's second son, James II, to comprehend this provoked his own overthrow in 1688. Yet thereafter, British monarchs were careful to rule through Parliament rather than try to rule without it. From the 1690s, Parliament placed itself at the heart of Britain's fiscal military state that did so much to make possible Britain's 18th century primacy in empire, colonisation, transatlantic slavery and world trade. Britain's mixed, unwritten constitution of monarch, lords and commons was widely considered to be a source of political strength and stability. Whilst the consequences of Naseby were far from unleashing democracy all across Europe, they did demonstrate that sovereigns could be held to account and that successful, more representative forms of government, including those of republics, were entirely feasible. Andy, thanks for helping us to understand the real importance and international significance of the Battle of Naseby. Mark, I look forward to following your exciting plans for the battlefield as they come together. Please do invite us back again to hear more about it. Thank you both. Thank you very much, Mike. Thank you very much, Mike, for including us. We hope you've enjoyed this programme. You will find more about the Battle of Naseby and the Naseby Battlefield Project, including links to videos, original sources, further reading and more, at the project's website, naseby.com, and in the notes accompanying this programme. Also listen to our podcast, The Prisoners of Naseby, in which Professor Hopper explores the fates of the thousands of royalist prisoners captured at Naseby, many of whose stories have been revealed by the Civil War Petitions Project. You can find these stories at civilwarpetitions.ac.uk. And to learn more about the British Civil Wars, register for our newsletter and view the library of programmes and resources at our website, worldturnedupsidedown.co.uk. Thank you.